Welcome to Intergalactic Tarbush, eclectic conversations from the Mena with Iyad al-Baghdadi and me, Ahmed Gatnash. We talk about politics, activism, tech, spirituality, mental health, and more. Hey, man. So in the last recording, you were really pissed off about Egypt. Yeah, so um, I was talking about water and food dependence, their vulnerability to Ethiopia, um, their general economic position, and the entrenched military that makes it even less likely they're going to climb out of this massive hole. Um, and there's a couple of other things that like compound my pessimism. One of them is the fact that mm. um, they're so dependent on the Suez Canal for revenue. Um, you know, it's really one of the uh, geopolitical the strengths of uh, Egypt, and it has been for a very long time. It gives them control over marine shipping. Um, but the thing is, um, the ice caps are melting. And the Arctic oh. is going to be a sea within a few decades. Uh, it's already navigable at times of the year. Mm. The first ship has already sailed, like, I think it was between Canada and Northern Europe. Um, and depending which, depending mm. where you're going, like if you're going from the Far East to Europe or you're trying to go from, like, um, the West Coast of the US to Europe or something like that, it can take thousands of miles off your route if you just sail up and above Canada yeah. and then back down the other side. Um, and what that's going to do is that's going to attract massive amounts of global shipping and take them away from Suez. So literally the map of the world is being yeah. redrawn um, and Egypt isn't on the new map. Wow. So what you're saying essentially is that Egypt depends... I mean, the Egyptian state, as currently constituted, gets a lot of its hard currency from uh, the Suez Canal. And it's not only economically important, but it's also geopolitically important. And it's about to become much less important. You know, uh, we're talking, I, I think what you what you said about, did, did, did those shipping lanes actually already open or are they going to open? The first ship has already passed. Um, the waters are still only occasionally navigable, but they're expected to be like completely open year round within a couple of decades. Um so mm. basically the place which benefits so, the most from this is Alaska because it becomes the stop that all the shipping uh, goes through. It's already like the air stop. Um, basically, yeah. you can carry less fuel and more cargo if you make a stop in Alaska. So a massive amount of the, the world's air shipping passes through Alaska. Um, and marine shipping is going to go the same mm. way. And this kind of parallels what's going to happen to no. a lot of the rest of the Middle East because you have this double whammy of, um, on the one hand, passing peak oil um, and the world transitioning to renewable energy. But on the other hand, there is believed to be massive oil and gas deposits in the Arctic Circle, and they fall within the territories of Russia, the US mm. in Alaska, Canada, uh, Denmark through Greenland, and Norway. Um, so on the one hand, the world is shifting mm. towards more renewables, and on the other hand, a whole bunch of other states are finding massive, are expected to find massive oil and gas deposits. Um, and at the same time, you've been cut out of shipping lanes. I mean, let, let's hope that, that that oil remains in the earth, because I don't think the earth can take us burning more of that stuff, especially like a couple of decades from now. Uh, but yeah, the writing is on the wall, man. I mean, we, of course, we wrote a book about this, and you know, we talk about this all the time. But one thing that really, like, we are not aligned with these regimes in any way, but it just pisses us off how incompetent they are and how, you know, 
Like, this guy wants to come and he wants to rule the country for I don't know how many years and he's going to die. And when he dies, or when they die, we're going to be holding this crisis for like for the next couple generations, three, four generations, because they haven't planned ahead for the future. <clears throat> yeah, these guys have basically screwed over their nations for generations down the line. Have you seen this film called Syriana? Uh, I mean, I heard about it. Haven't really saw. So I haven't, I haven't really seen it, but I do remember. Uh, I do remember some, like it, it. It made the rounds at the time, and like there were scenes basically that were being shared and stuff about how you know. Uh, this used to be desert, and now it's this, and then it's going to go back to desert. Yeah, so the it's basically about this uh, progressive prince of a fictional, um, like, Gulf uh, monarchy, which is oil-rich, who's trying to basically put his country on a sustainable path, um, and because of that, the US assassinates him before he takes power so that his playboy brother can have it and carry on, you know, the the status quo, which is, like, it's basically modeled on the Saudi so relationship. like the good MBS, though. Yeah, for all, he's not even the good MBS. He's... So, so he's like the good MBS. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, there's this bit where, I think it's Matt Damon who has this rant. He's, like, acting as this Western consultant, and he loses his shit at this prince and tells him, like, um, like all of your wells are going to run dry, and after that, you'll just go back to living in the desert like you like your ancestors did and you will have squandered the greatest natural resource in the history of humanity and got nothing out of it and it's it's exactly that so what are they thinking great they're thinking keep playing keep buying yourself new toys keep spending fifty thousand dollars a night on your hotel room but don't invest in your infrastructure don't build a real economy so that when you finally wake up they will have sucked you dry and you will have squandered the greatest natural resource in history I mean, this is depressing, and I can see why you know uh, you were depressed in the in the last episode, and uh, and you know like went on that rant about Egypt and stuff. But um, on the flip side, it's called the oil curse for a reason, and maybe we're actually lifting I the, mean, curse. the resource. Yeah, the resource curse. I guess. I mean. Uh, I mean, if you want to look at the bright side, uh, if there is one, it's that. Uh, population big population huge populations are associated with economic growth if you know what to do with them uh, of course they could also be associated with instability and stuff if you if you again for this for the same for the same reason because there's lots of people who are, who are, who are, who are unsatisfied um, but then I, I kind of made a mental note when you were talking about Alaska uh, because I remember I remember seeing this thing about how Alaska has really really huge airports uh, even though it doesn't get a lot of like passenger airports even though it doesn't get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of air traffic. And apparently the reason is because during the USSR, USSR times, uh, a lot of Western planes couldn't really fly over the USSR. And so they would, uh, you know, kind of avoid all of that and make a stopover in Alaska. And as a result, Alaska ended up with these huge airports that was kind of uh, eventually taken over by, by Amazon for, for cargo shipping and stuff like that. Yeah, Alaska's airport actually briefly became the busiest airport in the world last year as well, due to all the COVID-related increase in shipping. I mean, uh, I know that I'm kind of completely jumping topics, but uh, on the topic, I mean, because I have like a mental map of the of the globe, and I'm thinking like Alaska, uh, you know, China's here, Russia's here, because, you know, you kind of like, we normally see the world, uh, the world map as we see it, but then if you're talking about the Arctic Circle, you have to kind of, think about a different kind of uh, projection, yeah, right? Yeah, from above instead of metaphor. And I was thinking about one person. Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking about this one person, really, really weird person with a weird ca career, and who's really getting weirder, who's Steven Seagal, who's like this American guy who claims to be part, like, Native American, 
but is also a Russian citizen, but is also a Japanese citizen, but he can't go to Japan anymore because it pissed off too many people in Japan. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and it's just the weirdness of it. And the thing is, uh, out of, like, for no reason, the other day in the morning, I was, like, Googling what happened to Steven Seagal because, like, this is not normal. It's not normal human behavior. Right? So all I know is uh, that he makes bad uh, martial arts mo- or he used to make bad martial arts movies and he's uh, buddies with Putin. So wait, he's actually... So so yeah, I'm actually a black belt in Hapkido and Aikijutsu. Uh, you know, part, you know, in a, in a previous life. Uh, and my, I remember my, my, uh, my grandmaster actually telling me that... Uh, Steven Seagal, unlike other martial arts heroes, is actually a legitimate martial arts uh, professional. Like, when it comes to martial arts, he actually knows his shit. It's just that this other stuff in his life basically is like, you know, so... Like, he's not faking when it actually makes these moves. They're actually pretty advanced moves, but at the same time, the guy is such an asshole to everybody. And I... So I went in and I went like, like, is he like that in his personal life? And it turns out, yes, he is. Uh, he actually beat up people on, on film sets before. Uh, he actually like once walked into a movie set and he's like telling people that, hey, I run this place. So this guy who actually like chuckled because he thought it was a joke. So this guy like inch punched him in the, in the chest, like blue, like basically like, I, I don't know if he broke any ribs or anything. It was like just out of the blue, right? So I'm like, wait a minute. Like, why is this guy like this? Like what, what's, what happened in his life to make him like this? And like, I actually went, I went to his Wikipedia page and I went to childhood because this obviously is something that he's compensating for something. So I'm like, what is he compensating for? And it turns out that, yeah, I mean, I, I saw a paragraph where it's like before the age of six or something, he was actually had asthma. He had like lots of health problems and he used to be picked on a lot. And he used to like, you know, in, in, at school and stuff. And I'm like, okay, I put, I put, the, I put the picture into my head and I'm like, okay, this guy has led the rest of his life trying to compensate for something that happens before he was six years old. And it's not a statement just about Steven Seagal. But really about, you know, about personal growth, about PTSD, trauma, uh, you know, uh, self-awareness, where you can actually spend, I mean, if you have a miserable childhood and you're not self-aware, you can spend the rest of your life trying to compensate. You can, you built a life around yourself just trying to compensate for something that happened when you were a kid. And it's just so sad. I mean, it's just so sad. Of course, he's, I mean, he's still an asshole, but it's just a sad story. Yeah, that's really bizarre. I was reading recently about attachment styles and how, like, the relationship with your parents in early life basically dictates your, like, your, how psychologically secure you feel for a very long time, which affects, like, a lot of your future development. And it's an idea that I'd like to dive a lot more into in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I don't know if we actually saw the same the same video. Uh, YouTube sometimes does these things where it kind of it just wants everybody to see the video, and the video basically appears on like on many people's feeds. Uh, but then I was thinking about like attachment styles again, again, because attachment styles supposed to be like you know you can it can either be an authoritarian father uh, or authoritarian parents, uh, and then you know the child basically would develop in a certain way. You can be permissive parents, you know, kind of, you can let them do whatever they want. And that again, like has certain effects. The fourth, I think is like authoritative parents where uh, you're not really, uh, you know, you are an authority, but you're not really that strict. Uh, And then I think there's negligent parenting where, you know, you're kind of, uh, you know, you just let them, you you basically just, you know. uh, Yeah, so it's not really really paying attention to It's like quadrants where the two axes are how loving or not loving and how strict versus not strict. 
Yeah, something like that. Uh, that 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 actually makes sense. I mean, even though people are proposing a fifth one, which I don't remember what it was, but then the whole idea here is, um, I try to to um, to kind of map this onto my own parenting style with my son because you know I have a seven year old going to be eight year old and he has childhood autism, uh, which is something that runs on male side of my family. Uh, and the thing is, on the one hand we don't have to work very hard to give him rules because he like he loves rules right uh, and we don't have to work very hard to tell him listen solve this very hard puzzle or something because he loves hard problems uh, but at the same time yeah he needs a little bit more attention uh, because of because of his condition so i'm like okay where do i fall in because on, the, on some things i fall in here and some things i fall in here um but you know let me go back to steven seagal for a minute just just for a minute because i can't stop thinking about this i'm just thinking some people are privileged because this guy's rich, right? So he was able to build a life for himself where he surrounded himself by people and by things and by physical and social and material surroundings that make sure that he's not self-aware. So like he never actually had to pay the price for his assholeish behavior. And so he never had to be, you know, in a situation where it's like, wait a minute, this is not working. I have to self-introspect self, self and like try to understand why I act this way. And it's just made me think that sometimes if you're privileged you can actually use your privilege towards ensuring that you're not self-aware like protecting yourself from any situation that will force you to be self-aware and that's just fascinating because you know i don't know just never thought of it this way never thought of it that you know um you know we all have our demons we all have our you know darkness some of us are fortunate enough that we you know something is going to happen in our lives to force us to actually self, you know, to introspect while others are privileged enough that they can construct kind of social life that protects them from any situations of self-awareness. This reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend a couple of weeks ago, um, who is, um, a former refugee. Um, we were talking about, uh, her career and her plans. And she was basically saying that she's like very late, um, because it's taken her, so many years to just like find a stable life and be able to graduate uh, her studies in order to like start looking for the future and how like so many people are way way ahead of uh, this stage by this age and I said like you've got this on backwards because like like through the entire journey that you've recounted I can see so much um, intellectual and emotional and spiritual and personal growth um, and yeah there are a lot of people who like get their degree by 22, 23, join a management consulting firm or something like that. And yeah, they're very rich within a decade, but they've spent every waking hour working and basically are like very um, psychologically immature. They have very little personal knowledge. Um, they haven't worked through their emotional stuff. They haven't worked through their baggage or their, their past. Um, so it's really a big mistake to see it along that one axis and forget that you've been you know, developing along other axes at the same time. I mean, I, w I wish I could tell this to my father like 10 years ago when I was telling him that, you know, uh, since like a lot of my a lot of my startups and my startup career did not go well. And I was telling him at the times like, you know, wait, this is actually life experience and it will come in handy in the, in the future. Uh, but then, you know, like now it has. But back then it wasn't like I, I understand. I, I kind of sympathize with your friend because it does. It, it, I mean, I was in that situation myself and sometimes it can suck. But I don't know. I mean, let's uh, let's change topics. And uh, you know, there's something I read in the database where, where you're talking about 
universal basic income and how, you know, there's this experiment in Canada or something. What, what yeah, was this was really fascinating. So there's a bunch of um, UBI experiments around the world. Um, and there's this one in Canada, which gave homeless people seven and a half thousand dollars each. Um, and uh, so the, I think they finished the project and the, it basically found that the, the experiment paid for itself. Um, it's not just free money because uh, they gave each person seven and a half thousand dollars and that saved the shelter system over eight thousand dollars. Um, and, you know, my first reaction was surprise or like, wow, this is a very unorthodox solution, which uh, works really well. And when I sat and thought about it for a bit longer, the obviousness just hit me. Like, why is it shocking um, that in trust, like entrusting a massive national bureaucracy, which has like full-time civil servants taking orders from a central command and juggling multiple priorities, um, why would that be, why is it logical that that would be more efficient at taking care of a homeless person than that homeless person themselves? Um, like, you know, them being highly motivated, focused on just the single priority at hand. It's only shocking if you're like really submerged in the nation state paradigm and like you've been scripted to believe that the state is better at everything um, than we can possibly be. Um, yeah, it was just very striking to me. So, wait, can I ask you a question about it? Because I haven't, I haven't read the, the 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 story itself. But how did how did it pay for itself? So, so like they they gave them seven thousand seven thousand five hundred dollars each. Yeah, and these and guys then, basically ameliorated their own situation such that they weren't dependent on other resources like the shelter system, which was um, costing the state money anyway. Uh huh. So essentially, they saved money because they were already the, the state was basically already supporting them, and now you know not only did they were they better off than when was, the state supported them, but also they saved money that they saved the state's money as well. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of like preventative healthcare that you spend uh, ten cents on prevention today, and it saves you five hundred dollars in emergency surgery a few decades down the line. I mean, I'm. I'm I'm really fascinated by a lot of UBI, universal basic income, uh, you know, experiments, especially that some of them are actually coming. I mean, so, even some some people who are classically on the right on the, on the right end of the political spectrum, even right libertarians are kind of coming around to this. You know, they're like, OK, this is something that works um, when it comes to homelessness. Uh, however, I keep thinking that. A lot of the problem with homelessness is actually trauma. I mean, the reason why they can't really, like the reason why be they become homeless in the, in the first place, a lot of the, like uh, in, in many cases, not all of the cases, but in many cases, uh, it is associated with trauma. And the, the fact that you become homeless itself is traumatic. So they get traumatized even more. And sometimes the trauma keeps them in that circle. So like they're, they're stuck yeah. there. And this is another reason, I guess, why I feel like uh, the prospect of, uh, of you know, uh, of trauma medication, psychedelic medication for trauma, for PTSD, can actually improve the lives of so many different people. If it's like, if it's, of course, uh, you know, done safely in a scientific way, etc. But, you know, uh, normalized, uh, I think it can be really life changing, it can actually save, like, like, like you mentioned, like can save a lot of money from in, on welfare and stuff like that. Yep, music to my ears, brother. So, I was on Twitter the other day and, uh, you know, Twitter has redesigned the homepage so that you can see spaces as well. So like I see the space and the space is talking about this, uh, this person, I don't want to mention names, but this person who kind of belongs to a new opposition block. Uh, and, uh, the space was discussing whether he was right to attack other opposition figures. 
and he was like on he was basically one of those people uh i didn't really understand that yeah this is a new opposition much about it like i didn't i i went through his timeline i wanted to understand a little bit more and it turns out like it does not really use the word saudi at all because i think don't they they, they kind of call into question the legitimacy of the saudi state itself uh and uh you know uh they're islamists islamists in a sense that they're ideological so the the, the dispute between them was not about polit politics it was not about public matters it was not about you know how should we govern it was about theological matters and i i don't know i mean it made me sad to be honest it made me sad to think you know if 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 you make your movement theological then you are increasing the the points of disagreement and you're actually essentializing those disagreements that means you know if instead of me having only a only only to debate with you what is the next step for our you know to towards a, a good government or you know public affairs etc and instead of that that question whatever question we have having an answer that we can actually both you know like it's policy you end up with theological disputes it's almost like you're creating a sect and for that reason i mean this is we've, we've i mean i'm a former islamist myself and i can tell you you know it comes kind of with a bit a bit of ptsd reaction because there's a lot of internecine kind of um uh, fights among uh, islamists there's always this this whole thing about you know i'm more i'm more islamic than you uh, there's always this thing where they split among themselves and they fight among themselves and they can't they can never unite be behind one one specific like narrative or ideology because they have defined they've already defined themselves as you know as an ideological hyper ideological kind of organization and it's just sad I'm, uh, I'm I mean I'm I'm not I'm not uh, um, you know I'm 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 not even I don't even want to be critical of them it's just sad. Yeah, this reminds me of Mustafa Akil's book, Islam Without Extremes, and how he tries to basically revive this idea of irja, and that, like basically there are some ideas of disagreement that you have to postpone to, you know, the final judge on the day of judgment, because you're not going to solve them in this life. And that's a kind of compromise that um, Western democracies have come to, where um, like the secular model that you try and keep religion out of... Um, the public realm um and you know there are different ways of doing it and some are more successful than others you know obviously the french model is completely terrible because they try and pretend it's not there when it really is um whereas like more of a british model where we just don't talk about it and keep it private um has had more success but um you're gonna have more success resolving matters of public govern governance when you actually discuss matters of public governance than um insisting that exactly. everyone comes to agreement exactly. on theology and eschatology and the view of history and tradition first no i mean uh, it's it's i'm picking up on what you said in a way i actually think that because we don't have because this is theoretical and we're, we there is no political opening and you can't really comment on public affairs because you have dictatorships you don't have a democracy and for that reason we are stuck in theoretical mode talking about theoretical things Whereas if this if these people were forced to run public affairs, they would have that uh, that that luxury to talk about you know uh, you know fine matters of you know theology, because they have to run you know the, the, the streets that have to be built, there's hospitals that have to be run, etc. So, I, in a way, I feel that like this is a side effect of dictatorship. A side effect of dictatorship is we're not really discussing these matters in a, in a, in in any kind of practical way, and so we're stuck in that you know in that ideological realm. Yeah, there's a lot more that 
we that we can uh, say about that. But I think the episodes are on its length, so catch you next time. Thanks for listening. To support us, please leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. See you next time.